Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another edition of BAMS Radio, a member of the Bama Sports Radio family. I'm your co-host, Kerry Clark of BamaMag.com, and can be joined shortly by Drew DeArmond of ESPN 97.7, The Zone in Huntsville, and joined, as always, back in the studio by our producer, Emeritus Thomas Watts of Touchdown Alabama Magazine. We are coming off a funny week in Hoover, Alabama, the SEC Media Days once again. And the votes are in, and Alabama has been chosen to win the Western Division by the media covering said event. Ironically and uh, imperceptibly to me, the same media chose Auburn to win the Southeastern Conference without winning the Western Division. Not sure how the Tigers can pull that off. Don't think they can. But that's how it was voted on. That's how it was picked. And Georgia was the consensus to win the East. Now, I did not have any uh, doings with this process because while I did vote, I picked Auburn fourth in the West, much less not winning the SEC. I picked Alabama to win the SEC over Georgia in Atlanta. And we have not gotten the results yet from the Southeastern Conference on the preseason OSBC team numbers. We voted on that uh, a couple of days ago, but we don't have the results yet. Those will be releasing tonight or tomorrow. But it was an interesting week at the uh, Winfrey in Hoover, Alabama. I had a chance Wednesday to speak with Kenyon Drake and Reggie Ragland. I did not make it by Ryan Kelly's table. And I had the chance to hear the entire presentation by Nick Saban in the print room. So I had a hefty day's worth of work at another media days that's in the books. And some of the more interesting things that I found out was uh, when I was talking to Reggie Ragland, I specifically asked Reggie to tell me who had stood out to him in the informal 7-on-7 pass skeleton drills this summer. And he was uh, quick to name three defensive backs, and then upon prodding, he named a couple of offensive players as well. But the guys in the secondary that have stood out to Reggie who would know are Ronnie Harrison, no surprise there, had a great spring. And then... These next four names I'm going to rattle off to you are Carrie, you broke up. Can you repeat that? that uh, yeah, uh, I was talking. I'm going to uh, give some names that Reggie Ragland gave to us as guys that stood out to him in past skeleton drills. And the first one he named was Ronnie Harrison. 
but he also named Minka Fitzpatrick and Kendall Sheffield. He's impressed with all three of those guys on his side of the ball. And then I asked Reggie to give us a couple of names on offense that have stood out in the skeleton passing drills. And the first two names out of his mouth, the only two names out of his mouth, were Calvin Ridley at wide receiver and Damian Harris at running back. Music to the ears of the Crimson Tide Nation. He, in fact, told me that on the first day that he was out there about when they started the skeleton drills that Calvin Ridley made a diving one-handed catch that impressed everybody out there on the practice field. So that's really good to hear. And then I was not at Ryan's table, but I'm told that Ryan had some very nice things to say about the true freshman lineman from Wetumpka who got there and made Brandon Kennedy. Uh, not sure that Brandon will play this year, but apparently he's doing a very good job of not only weight room work and agility work, but picking up the blocking schemes that guys like Ryan and him are legally allowed to teach him in the offseason. So good for Brandon Kennedy, a guy that's been on this show before. Ryan Harrison's been on this show before. Uh, so, you know, some of our BAMS radio alums are, uh, are standing out this week. And also on Wednesday, I had the chance to spend a little bit of time with Drew Yarman on his regular daily radio show, which was set up on Radio Road down there uh, at the Winfrey. Don't think I'd ever done that before. If I had, it's only been one time. But it was the first time in memory I had done Radio Row. I was only home with Drew for eight or nine minutes. But I guess the cool thing about it was I followed Nick Saban. So Drew had his first ever one-on-one with Nick Saban. I know he's excited about that, and he'll tell us a little more about that. And then after Nick was done, I sat in for about eight or nine more minutes. Each of us got about eight or nine minutes with Drew. Nick because he was in a hurry, and me because Drew was in a hurry. Drew had a lot of stuff scheduled. But still fun to do that. And uh, it, it's really a unique experience. That There were some characters in the lobby. There always are on Alabama Day. There were two guys in Ohio State t-shirts. Uh, ostensibly there to talk. But someone from the media who interviewed them found out they were really Auburn fans. No shot there. Um, there was a guy dressed like Paul Bear Bryant who looked eerily like Paul Bear Bryant. <laughs> and there was Ring Boy. Uh, he was there with his big ring hat on again. And this time he had added to his repertoire. He brought a custom-made SEC championship belt that looked like a uh, boxing or wrestling belt. I don't, you know, I'm told the guy works at Walmart, but he must save his money because there's no way that belt came cheap and he paid for it himself. But, Always interesting to see the uh, gamut of people in the lobby on media day. Um, we got a really big show, uh, sound like Ed Sullivan there. A really big shoe lined up for you tonight, and uh, we'll be joined around, uh, let's see, it's uh, 7.07 now. We'll be joined at some point by Rudy Armand, we think, but we'll also be joined around 7.15 by Colin Dixie McGuire, our weekly caller from Greenville, former Alabama football manager, who was featured uh, on the SEC Network's Alabama Takeover during the January 1979 Sugar Bowl in New Orleans. He was seen uh, doing his job back then as manager as being the ball boy for that game and uh, getting run over by a Penn State receiver on the last drive of the game. But he popped right back up to his credit. He's uh, he's quite the guy. We'll hear from Big C. Uh, We're also going to hear... Around 25 after from Paige Hockman, who's got some news about her son, Georgie Statham, and his future in Alabama on the baseball team. Uh, 30, and these are Central Time if you're listening live. 
we'll hear for the first time ever from Hannah Chalker with Crimson Tide Productions. Uh, she stepped in when Tom Roberts retired. Uh, so Hannah's going to share her uh, thoughts on her new job and also her thoughts on Media Day. So that'll be good. And then next hour, uh, around five after, we're going to hear from John Garcia, Jr. of Scout.com, my, my cohort down the mag. And John was uh, in Oregon last week attending the opening, and he's got a lot of impressions that he could share with us from that awesome event that he got to go. And um, we are told that uh, Drew is on the way. He should be with us in just a couple minutes. And so we'll just continue to ad-lib. And um, Thomas, I know you were not there in person, but uh, what were your impressions from afar on Media Day 15? Well, anytime Nick Saban says something that can be slightly misconstrued as an excuse, well, obviously be used as an excuse to attack Alabama. And you kind of have to wonder at some point, when does low hanging fruit kick in and they go find and media members go find something else to talk about. But as of right now, same old, same old, but what do you expect? I was surprised that Saban mentioned Jake Coker by name, because I quite frankly think that he's not a great quarterback but if he can magically figure stuff out and lead Alabama more power to him, I just saw absolutely nothing that convinced me that he can do much more than place hold for somebody worth a rip. Well, I'm not sure which occasion you're talking When he mentioned him in the big print room, it was in response to a question. Well, uh, He was not going to volunteer it. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but he said somewhere that um, – Jake Coker has looked quote unquote impressive and that's great after what you pretty much have to say was a mediocre at best spring from the young man. Oh, you're right about that. But, uh, Drew and I have received some information that we trust from Redfish who, who has friends on the team, quite frankly. And apparently maybe two or even three weeks ago, the light began to come on for Jake in the 707. That's what we're told. Uh, we'll find out, obviously, when the pads go on next month. Yes, next month, friends, next month. But apparently, Jake, from a leadership perspective and from a passing perspective and, and maybe not quite holding the ball so long perspective, has, has began to improve in the last two to three weeks. And we're joined now by Drew DeArmond, who I believe is hearing the same thing. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Uh Sorry, a little late on today. Been a long week at SEC Media Days. Uh, I heard the conversation, uh, uh, Thomas and uh, Kerry. And, you know, yeah, we I've heard a little bit. Jake may have improved in the last month and be stepping up from a leadership standpoint uh, in seven on seven. And and uh, you, that's what you'd hope because uh, contrary or not really contrary, it's what I was told and what I believed the entire time, and I don't know if you guys have talked about this yet, but um, Braxton Miller was very, very close to coming to the University of Alabama. Talked to someone uh, uh, that I that I met down there that's uh, in business uh, in the Hoover area, and he even talked to Braxton on the phone because he was a good friend also of Trey DePriest. It just Urban Meyer did the best sales job you could do to combat it and stop it. And he did not come to Alabama. So now it is Jake Coker and David Cornwell's and Blake Barnett to a degree, 
job to lose. I do think it's going to be Coker or, Bar- or excuse me, or Cornwell at this moment. Uh, yeah, I still have not given up on the fact that Blake Barnett could be heavily in the mix, maybe by midseason, and he's going to be given a shot in fall camp. But you still got to believe it's going to be Cornwell and uh, and Coker. And from what and from hearing Nick Saban, and I got a chance to speak with him uh, on my show and uh, ask him about the fit of the offense around the quarterbacks. And the two guys mentioned were uh, uh, Coker and Cornwell, and I think it's going to be one of those two guys. But I do think if all the fans out there. And it's been a hot topic on uh, Tider Insider, where I uh, also contribute today. Uh, many want are trying to, uh, or uh, kind of uh, not wanting to hear the fact that Alabama may be going back to the 2008-2009 style of offense, thinking that that won't work in today's football. But I still think it can, but and I think it will have to with this year's team because they're going to have to mold the offense around the quarterbacks they have it. Coach Saban said that on my show, basically. Once I asked him the question, he said, Blake Sims was a different style last year, and they're going to have to go back and, uh, and, uh, and, and decide whether it be Cornwell or Coker. Uh, it, the offense is going to have to be tailored around their skills, and they can't execute the offense, in my opinion, that Blake Sims did a year ago. Well, I, I agree. I, you know, I, I think that something's going to dramatic have to happen for – the first snap against Wisconsin in, in Dallas to not be taken by Coker. I mean, we'll have to have an all-time bad fall camp. What happens after that, I, I think he's up in the air because it's going to depend on how he executes what he's told to execute. I feel like he's going to be given a, a, a pretty simple bag of tricks to execute. Maybe sophomore A.J. McCarron or junior Greg McElroy, simple. And maybe he'll grow into the rule and they can add more to his bag of tricks. Maybe not. But as Rodney Orr has said to us many times, if Lane Kiffin can do what he did in 2009 with Jonathan Crompton and turn him from a slug into a draft choice, he can at least, in my opinion, make Jay Coker a serviceable quarterback. Uh, I appreciate all the talk about Cornwell. That's all fine and good. But when David Cornwell signed with Alabama, I don't, I don't think people were jumping up and going, oh, he's going to be the starter one day. They, they thought he, they had a serviceable backup. I, I still that's what they, I think they have. The job is eventually, by no later than next August, going to be Blake Barnett's. So this is a bridge year. While Blake, who's listed at 6'5", 200 in the new media guide, puts on some maiden weight and muscle and learns the offense. This is a bridge year. Who's going to take Bama across that bridge to Blake Barnett? I think it's Jake Coker. But you know what? I'll be the first to admit, Drew, he could end up being a John David Phillips and only start two or three games before he's beaten out. I admit that. But that's that's to be seen. My point is that against Wisconsin, I'm about 95% sure the first snap's going to be going to Jake Coker. And I agree, Kerry, now. I mean, I know I disagreed with you before because I thought Braxton Miller was coming to Tuscaloosa, and I thought they would continue to run an offense similar to Blake Sims. Now, that did not happen. Um, Regardless if it's uh, Coker or Cornwell, I think it will be like – and I don't forget 2008 with John Parker Wilson, who, you know, was very efficient. He had two years starting experience, but he was very efficient. They didn't take a lot of chances with him, and – he was able uh, to throw 20, 25 times a game and, and make plays. Uh, and, of course, he started two years under Coach Saban. But, again, 
he was a low risk, high reward quarterback that year and, and protected the football. And, uh, and he did take his shots, and but most of the time he did not turn the football over, and was able to be very a, a very solid quarterback for Alabama. And I think that's what the tide would take right now if they with, with Jake Coker, who has uh, the the uh, ability. And I also had Murph Baldwin on my show, and that Thomas he talked about. I mean, including you back in the conversation because he talked about the piece he wrote and them going vertical more. And I think that's what you're going to see them do. And I think they, they took some shots like that with John Parker Wilson as well uh, during that year in 2008. And I think you're going to see the Tide do more of that. And, of course, with Greg McElroy in 2009. And Greg got progressively better that season. In a perfect world, Jake Coker would improve a lot and be the guy to bridge to Blake Barnett. But if he struggles and turns the ball over, which is what I'm afraid of, you know, David Cornwell will be given an opportunity and, of course, if both struggle, that's when I think, you know, Barnett could take over. But if that happened, that would be the worst-case scenario. That would be the three-loss season. Some even were predicting four in Birmingham. But my my uh, my, my worst case because of how good the defense would be would be three losses, much like 2010. But, again, I, I the best case is for Blake Barnett to redshirt. And I still think with his improvement in another year's time, he would be my favorite for 2016. No disrespect to Cornwell. I think he's a talented kid. And I disagree with Kerry in somewhat. I don't think he was signed as a backup. I think they think he has a lot of potential and can be a good player. But, again, they just continue to recruit and win on a year-to-year basis. And I thought, you know, Blake Barnett was a better prospect, more polished. Uh, Cornwell only played a year and a half of high school football and missed most of his senior season. Great size, I think, good arm. But I just think Blake Barnett has the intangible. I think he's a leader. I think he's a playmaker. The corner route he threw in the 8 day game for a 40-yard TD to Ardarius Stewart, I think he's the only one on the team that can make that throw. 35, 40 yards is perfect. And I just think – and I hate to put pressure on him. You know, good Lord rest his soul. First time we've had the show since it's happened, but Snake Stabler passes away. And uh, really, I think he reminded me kind of a right-handed snake, slithery guy, but a playmaker and – just really, uh, you know, exciting uh, kid to watch. And I, I was really enthused with what I saw in the spring. He made some mistakes, but I thought he was a lot further along than Cornwell at the same point. And we'll see how much he's improved in the summer. But I think it will be Jake Coker to start. We'll see if he can hold on to the job. And Alabama fans need to hope that uh, he can come a long way and that Kiffin can work some magic. Because if he can, I've said this on this show and on mine, on 97.7 The Zone, if you see Lane Kiffin make a productive QB out of Jake Coker and Alabama wins the SEC or even the Western Division, I think uh, Lane Kiffin should be held in the same esteem as Homer Smith. Oh, boy. All right, we got our first caller of the night on his uh, net. Welcome to BAMS Radio. Colin Big C. McGuire, the pride of Greenville, Alabama, and the star of last week's SEC Takeover Alabama Sugar Bowl replay. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm from Greenville, but I'm heading westward, so I'm not in Alabama. I'm out of state, but I, you know, I, I always, I'm a faithful caller to y'all. So you just kitty tomorrow. Don't worry about being on the air tomorrow with me. All right. What's going on? That, that is, um, uh, it's been a sad week for Alabama fans because of the passing of State Staver and Doug Layton yesterday. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that about Doug Layton. Um, I, I always respected Doug from afar. I only talked to him in person maybe three or four times, but 
uh, my supervisor, boss, editor, publisher at BamaMag.com, Kurt McNair's great friends with Doug, and I know he was really sad, and uh, he wrote a good column about today. Uh, I was at a restaurant uh, here in Hoover about a month ago, and I saw this guy come in, and he, he looked kind of like Doug, and I, I wasn't really sure because I didn't know what Doug's health situation was, and I heard him talk, and I think it was Doug, but regretfully I didn't go up and speak to him, but I'm now pretty sure after hearing what he's been going through that it was him, but he'll be missed. Uh, you know, he was... His call on the, uh, along with Paul Kennedy on the Van Tiffin field goal, the 1985 Iron Bowl, will go down and hit yeah. me. The, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. Doug was the second <laughs> with the base version. Paul, Paul was the tenor. But, uh, yeah, you know, it, it, Doug was a, the voice for many, many years of Alabama basketball. Uh, he actually had a lot to do with getting Wednesday games starting to be televised back in the 70s when they used to only show Saturday games. And Doug, Doug will be missed. He was a, a veteran broadcaster here in Birmingham on, on the radio and uh, did so much for so many years with the Alabama Network. And, and, and certainly, you know, we weren't on last week to talk about Snake, but we're, Snake is a guy that will be missed too. The, probably the friendliest all-time great of Alabama history regarding the way he interacted with people and signing the autograph for anybody and speak to anybody anytime. Yeah. And, Guys, it'll really, really be missed. It has, it has been a tough last week or so for the Alabama family, Big C. Yeah, it really has. I agree. I agree, Big C. And uh, it's very, very sad. I was saddened to hear late last night, around midnight, about the passing of Doug Layton, and I tweeted it out. It got a lot of interaction, and uh, you know, may he rest in peace. Uh, I, I did not know his health situation either, and uh, he was a long time, you know, disc jockey and radio voice on, on the airways, and of course. Uh, with Alabama, uh, with you know John Forney and uh, and uh, Jerry Duncan, and uh, we're going to have Jerry Duncan on uh, 97.7 on the Zone Talking Ball tomorrow on my show. Looking forward to hearing from Jerry. I know it's a hard time for him. Uh, they were basically the the trio that so many Alabama fans grew to love, and and Doug continued uh, his his great work uh, under uh, Paul Kennedy and Eli Gold and. Uh, you you got to just you know, and he I, I believe uh, he, I believe he retired after the 2001 season. So Doug Layton right. is uh, synonymous uh, with Alabama football. His voice is you know him as soon as, as soon as you hear him speak, and uh, it's just really sad that Alabama's lost him and Snakes. They were two of the great, uh, maybe the two best color guys. No disrespect to Phil Savage, who does a great job still and has carried the torch. And he was at SEC Media Days this week and talked about the past and the snake, but again, two of the, the, the two best, probably most well-known play-by-player or color analysts, I should say, in Crimson Tide Sports Network history. Did we lose Big C? We, we may have. Uh, well, that's fine. we got another call coming in in about a minute and a half anyway. Uh, oh, we lost Big C. Okay, I, I, I thought he was still there. It, no, I, but you know he was on his cell and driving somewhere through Texas. But um, yeah, cell service can be spotty. <laughs> I guess he got the. Uh, I guess he got the producer boot. Anyway, <laughs> he gone. It's a size <laughs> twenty, kids. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it's a uh, uh, it, it's a uh, steel toad. He got the producer boot. He wasn't bringing it this week. Well, okay. Well, it was just silence, but I, I can't do silence on the air, guys. Come on. Yeah, you can't. No, we can't have dead air there. We love Big C. We want to thank him for calling in uh, from Texas, and 
we uh, and, and and again, it, it and he and it's it really is sad uh, with Doug Layton passing, and and of course uh, Snake Day, where we haven't had a chance to talk about that, and you know the Snake, uh, it was really upsetting. Uh, as I tweeted out, I it was probably the first time I cried uh, since uh, you know Derek Thomas passed away, and there's just certain guys that are legends um, in Alabama football. Cause sometimes that term can be overused and and uh, kind of worn out, but in the case of the snake, it wasn't. Um, it, to me, it's like I said, he's the, the best left-handed quarterback in tied history, Joe Namath being the best right-handed. They're intertwined, and uh, Joe's an adopted son of the state of Alabama, and the snake is basically a native son, and that's what made it hard, I think, for a lot of people. He was Foley's own. And, and, and also, Kerry, and talking to uh, Kirk at, at SEC Media Days, he had no nobody had any idea how sick Snake was. Even Bob Baumhauer, who's his best friend, and most of his none of his Raider teammates knew about it. So it was kind of a sudden thing, like being sucker punched, and it's just been really hard. Yeah, and and I didn't know how bad Doug was. I knew he was a little sick, but I didn't know how how bad he was. Right, but right. Of course, now Doug Doug was eighty one. Kenny was sixty nine. That's sixty nine seems young. I lost my dad at sixty seven to leukemia, so I know how that that goes. But yeah, it was nobody saw it coming because it was kept so private. And frankly, the guy died on Wednesday morning, I think, and it, it didn't even come out until Thursday afternoon. So the, the family kept it private for a little while, and then and then a reporter that was just doing his job uh, put it out there and had it retracted because they only had one source, and his new web guy published it anyway before he was told to publish it. Uh, that's the joys of the internet. But it turned out the info that Aaron Souls had was correct, and even though he manned up and apologized, but he, he really didn't need to because he had the story right. Well, he did, Kerry, and he's a and, and there, Aaron Settles is a good guy uh, and, and a uh, and, and it's somebody that I respect and is a resourceful reporter. He's a class act and just spoke briefly to him at SEC Media Days. But again, uh, and and it, and it was and what's an, another thing that's kind of crazy, Kerry? He was already buried Friday, so it was just a. A, a very quick thing. Uh, a lot of people didn't realize, you know, uh, again how sick he was. And then by the time you're you're starting to process it, he has already they've already had the funeral and he'd already been buried. So it's just very very tough. Uh, and and again, the Alabama family is uh, going to be mourning about that for a while. And then of course with Doug Layton passing away, and uh, that was uh, basically a, a big topic today at SEC Media Days around lunchtime. Everyone really started figuring it out uh, that had not heard the night before. And, it, and it's sad, you know, because uh, Doug was 81 years old. But like you said, Kerry, nobody realized that he had uh, cancer as well and had been fighting it for really the last couple of years. And uh, and, and it's just a sad it's a sad day. And uh, and and you're right, uh, that, on the drive with Wes and Steve on my station, that's the, they let off their show today as I was coming back into Huntsville from Hoover with uh, the kick, and that's what he's going to be known for. Uh, and he was uh, – uh, let's not forget also, he was as you uh, mentioned, uh, he was the voice of tight basketball too for a long time. Oh, he was. I, I, that's, I used to see him at all the games. And, uh, and you know, Drew, uh, as tough as the news has been for the family here in the last week, there was a piece of good news today, a piece of good news about a young – center fielder deciding to stay for his senior season for Mitch Gaspar and the Alabama Crimson Tide baseball team. And I want to bring his mom on right now, a great friend of the show, Paige Hockman, the pride of Vestavia Hills and Marshall <coughs> County both, former pageant winner, mom of Georgie. Paige, how are you doing? 
Oh, hey, Carrie. I'm doing great. How are y'all doing? Good, good, Paige. How are you? Thank you so much for sharing that great news on Twitter today. But for those who didn't read it, why don't you go ahead and tell the Bounds Radio world what your son has decided to do? Well, he has decided that he will return to the university for his senior year, which, um, being his mama, I am very happy for him. He's a, <clears throat> Georgie's a very, very hardworking uh, double business major with a very, very high GPA. In fact, he made a 4.0 this past semester, but I'm not going to brag about that or anything. Hmm. <laughs> and um, he, uh, he, he would probably like to play pro ball maybe he'll get that chance next year hopefully he'll be drafted again um and um have that opportunity but for right now he he just alabama is um too important to him at this point yeah Paige and i we're proud to have him back for his senior season uh, obviously uh Many thought that he would be able to turn pro after his junior year, but uh, and he had a really good second half of the season. Still had that opportunity, and I know he he had a certain figure in mind and uh, that he wanted to to give up his last year at the University of Alabama, but uh, wasn't able to get that out of the Diamondbacks. And you can't really blame him for coming back. Uh, he can finish his, as you said, he's a double major, very good student. He's uh, grown up always wanting to play for the University of Alabama. And of course, uh, not besides uh, finishing his uh, double major uh, next year at the Capstone, he gets a chance to to play in uh, a state-of-the-art ballpark uh, for Mitch Gaspard for his senior season. So it's a very exciting time and uh, something that should have happened a long time ago and over long overdue for the baseball program. But he will be an answer to a trivia question and he will be playing and be a senior leader on the first team that got a chance to play in the new Joe. So that's exciting. Yeah, I don't know who's more excited about that, me or him. I mean, I'm, that there were several factors that kept weighing on him, and that was one of them. And I think as far as going to the Diamondbacks, other than Georgie put a pretty high number out there that he wanted to go pro, and that, that was by design, um, you know, because he, he knew that he would be happy staying as well. Um, so, but part of it was to the stadium. That was something that he was factoring in and just all of the excitement around that and being, being able to play in that new stadium was part of, um, part of his decision. And then, um, then on the other side of that with the Diamondbacks organization, I think that, um, there would have been a good opportunity with them in the sense that they were fairly weak in their club um as far as outfielders go and and i i don't know a whole lot about it that's just what i was told by a couple of scouts and so anyway that's what they say anyway and so that would maybe pull him toward the diamondbacks but you know they at the at, after it was all said and done i mean they just were not going to come up to the to the number that, that he wanted and he is, like I said, quite fine with that. And I think now that, that all is said and done, he feels like a huge weight has been lifted off his shoulders. And he can just – he's in summer school right now, finishing the last half of um, summer school. And that was another thing. If he went and played pro ball this summer, if he turns pro, you know, that, that messes up his whole entire plan for graduating in May because right now, 
he is on target to to graduate um, in May. And I think that Georgie, since he was a little bitty kid, he likes doing things in a certain order. Um, you know, I don't care if he's stacking up Dixie cups to make a pyramid. He he likes to finish things, and I think there was just something inside of him that just felt like he wanted to finish all four years at Alabama, finish his eligibility, get his degree, and then go on to the next phase of life. Hey, I got to tell you this because I, I know you saw it in person and got a great Mother's Day gift out of it, but I was driving home from my mom's and had the Auburn Network on when Georgie made that Sunday afternoon catch to save the game and, and clinch the sweep for Alabama. And finally, on the SEC Network takeover, I got to watch the replay of that and I gotta tell you, Paige, I've seen a lot of great catches by center fielders in my life, Andrew Jones, what have you. That catch was awesome. And just tell us kind of like what it was like for you as a mom to be there in enemy territory and see your son make a play like that. Well, I think um what I typically do is I always have that um watch ESPN app on my phone so that when any of our players make a great play or have a great hit, or if there's a questionable play or questionable call by an umpire, I it's about a 45-second delay on that app. So I will quickly pull up that app and watch what just happened because, you know, when he made the play, it looked amazing sitting in the stands. But until I saw it in slow motion and it was nominated for ESPN, you know, top 10 play of the day, not until I saw it in slow motion did I realize that he really did look like Superman flying through the air to catch that ball. And I do think that that really took whatever momentum Auburn was trying to garner. I do think it took the wind out of their sails when that happened because I think they had loaded up the bases and they needed to score. And then that kind of ended the inning for them. And Paige, uh, it was uh, it was it was awesome. I mean, it set up a sweep of Auburn, which was the the highlight of the year. But speaking of uh, of his senior season, uh, now that he's decided and his mindset has shifted uh, to returning for his final year at Alabama, uh, there you know a lot of, led by Mikey White and a lot of his uh, you know guys. He the recruiting class he came in with has moved on to professional baseball. Uh, what's his uh, outlook for the team next year? Um, well, I know he's really excited about it, and there are some there are some guys coming in, and I do not really know their names right off the top of my head, but I know there are some guys that they thought would go ahead and go pro, but they've decided to come play college. So I think he's excited about those people, and I know that there's a second baseman um, who's already who was already drafted out of high school who's coming to Alabama, and yeah. And I know he he's he's really excited about meeting him and uh, you know seeing what he can do. I think probably uh, Chandler Avant's probably going to be our second baseman. Um, I'm not sure where they're going to put that guy, but um, you know Chandler just like Georgie, you know everybody's got to work for their position all over again, um, starting in the fall. You know, so about the second weekend in fall, they're, they'll start having their false scrimmages again. Well, Paige, so he's, thank he's, you so really, much he's really excited, though, is what I meant to say. Drew, I'm sorry to finish the thought on no, that. No, it's all good. I'm sure he is. 
Yeah, he, he, and, you know, all of our coaches are going to be back and, you know, with the new stadium and there's just going to be so, it's just going to be so much fun to be on the Alabama baseball team this coming year. He's well, really excited about good. it. Yeah, no doubt, Paige. And I'm glad you're going to be able to experience it with him and we have a lot of great memories. And uh, we thank you for joining us again today and letting us know about Georgie's decision and kind of his mindset and, and how you're, and how the whole family feels about it. It's been great. Mm-hmm. Yep, no problem, and thanks you guys for having me on. No problem. And, Thank uh, you, Paige. We'll see you soon at Asian Rim and Colonnade and Hunts for both. Y'all don't forget to patronize Paige's restaurant, Asian Rim, outstanding Thai food. Been there, done that, love it. But now it's my privilege to bring on a first-time guest on BAMS Radio, the newest member of Crimson Tide Productions family who has stepped in with the retirement of Tom Roberts and taken the microphone and run with it. Uh, a new friend of mine, but I'm very thrilled to have her join us here tonight. Uh, Hannah Chalker of Crimson Tide Productions is with us. And Hannah, how are you tonight? Hey, Carrie, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. This is awesome. We're glad to have you on. And uh, just because our listeners may not be familiar with what your new role is, go ahead and, and tell us a little bit about what your role will be now at Crimson Tide Productions. Well, yeah, sure. Um, Like you said, Tom Roberts retired, so they're revamping the position a little bit. I'm no Tom Roberts. I'm no Alabama legend, Um, not trying to be, but I come from a long background of broadcast journalism. I actually graduated from Old Miss, so sorry, Alabama fans, but I'm very neutral, very objective. Um, I'm basically doing on-camera work, um, hosting shows on Thai TV, reporting for RollTide.com. I edit, I produce, I write scripts, um, basically anything that they kind of need in the broadcast world, um, I'm kind of here to fill that role. So really excited to be a part of the Alabama family, that's for sure. And uh, Hannah, this is Drew DeArmond, and we're honored to have you join us. And it's always uh, the big shoes to fill when someone like Tom Roberts retires. And but you uh, had to be honored to be chosen uh, to uh, come on to the, the broadcast team. And it's a, it's got to be a kind of a dream job to be able to work closely uh, with an athletic department like the Crimson Tide. And, of course, uh, you experienced a lot of that at old, when you graduated from Ole Miss. But what was your uh, – when you uh, did the Crimson Tide takeover, I mean, that had to be a, a neat experience to be able to help uh, put on 24 hours of content for the Crimson Tide. How was that experience for you? Yeah, Drew, that was actually, I have to say, I've only been um, a part of the Crimson Tide Productions team for three months, and that is the highlight of my entire career. And that's pretty big, because I've done a lot of things. I've covered BCS championships, um, SEC championships. I've done a lot of big events, but hosting an hour-long show on the SEC Network um, for the Alabama Takeover was incredible um christopher england and i both hosted that show but it took a lot of work a lot of production and work from the whole team but that is definitely one of the highlights of my career i mean turning on the sdc network and watching a show that you know you helped put together and you wrote the script and you hosted it is really really cool so it really is a dream job i mean like i said i've I've worked on a bunch of networks. I've been very close to the SEC since I graduated from Ole Miss in 2011. I um, worked for SECsports.com and reported for them. Um, We broke the news when the two new members, Missouri and Texas A&M, were brought into the conference, worked for Comcast Sports Southeast, worked for UGA. So this is just another step, and I am 
so happy to be with Alabama. Um, and like you said, it really is a dream job. Everyone work, wants to work with sports, uh, work in sports and around sports. So um, the athletic program here at Alabama is is really incredible. And Hannah, before there was the SEC network, there was the SEC digital network, and you were a part of that. And tell us a little bit about that experience and how that came about. Yeah, so I graduated with a broadcast journalism degree from Old Miss and um, had worked really hard closely with ESPNU Campus Connection and met um, a bunch of people and was recommended for the job. It was down in Orlando, Florida, and it was, yeah, SEC Digital Network um, at Media Days before the SEC Network started. That was the big logo, the SEC Digital Network, secsports.com. So I was their main reporter and host. That's how I got my start um, in broadcasting and reporting. And it was really great. It was ran by a company called Exos. We owned the right the website, uh, was employed by them to work for the SEC, and it was great. I mean, worked so closely with the conference. Uh, was at every major event, every SEC championship. Uh, we traveled with Alabama down to the BCS championship when they played Notre Dame. It was a really great experience, and um, working for the SEC is just unlike any other. I mean, you have to be very professional, um, obviously, with such a prestigious conference, and Alabama is a part of that conference. So I'm so, so happy to be here in Tuscaloosa. And uh, Hannah, uh, kind of preview for us. What uh, what is what what kind of roles and what do you what are the plans going to be for the fall? Of course, because uh, football is such a big production at Alabama, and so much goes into that. And Christopher England's done a great job with Ty TV. But now, what role are you going to play this fall? Here, has that been uh, decided, and what's in the works? Yeah, you know, we're still deciding it. Um, Christopher and England and I are working directly together. We're basically a team. Um, I'm going to be doing a couple different things. I might be doing some play-by-play on SEC Network Plus. Um, we do a lot of digital broadcasts for volleyball, soccer, um, women's basketball, men's basketball, baseball, softball. So I'm probably dabbling in some play-by-play, doing some sideline for those uh, productions as well. And we do live shows on Thai TV that Christopher Stewart, or Chris Stewart hosts. So I'll be reporting on those shows, um, putting together packages, um, all while reporting for RollTide.com. So um, Christopher England and I are going to be working very closely together, and it's just going to be a whirlwind. This summer has been um, pretty slow for production because it's summer. There's no sports going on right now. Um, besides, you know, football hyping up right now. So I'm really excited to see how this fall is going to transpire um, with my new role because Tom Roberts, it's a complete revamp of the role. Tom Roberts is Tom Roberts. Nobody's trying to recreate that. So it's just a new role, and we're, we're, still, we're still working it out. So we'll, we'll be figuring it out as the fall comes around. And Hannah, I wanted to ask you, I, I know this week was not your first go-around at Media Days, but it was your first go-around as, as part of the Alabama contingent. So why don't you just kind of take us through your day yesterday from the time you got in the car and left Tuscaloosa to the time you got home, and what, what all are you? What were your takeaways from Media Days? Yeah, Carrie, I hadn't been back since 2012, so I was – thrilled to be back covering media days um blast from the past but you're right i hadn't been there representing alabama i had been representing the conference alabama players was a completely different experience so obviously sec media days is in alabama closer to alabama fans closer to alabama media so as soon as we walk in with the players i mean it's just 
flashes. I mean, the cameras are going, cameras are rolling, so there's video, there's pictures, and you're just kind of blinded, and you're trying to, you know, usher in the players and walk behind the players because they've got a schedule down Radio Row before they get to the TV room and all of that. So it was unlike any media days that I had been to walking in with um, Alabama. But it was really incredible. I mean, every time I turned around, it was someone else that I was trying to catch up with and hadn't seen before. And we had to leave with the team. So we were there. We got there about 8. Um, they wrapped things up about 1230 in the afternoon. And we were in with the team, out with the team. So there wasn't a lot of time um, to catch up with people and talk. So it was really quick, in and out. And it was really fun going with Alabama. I mean, the Alabama fans are cheering in the lobby. Um, great, great experience, and I hope I'm I hope I'm there again next year with Alabama. Uh, no doubt, Hannah. And it was my first time at SEC Media Days as a member uh, with my radio show on in Huntsville's 97.7 The Zone, and it was crazy. Uh, I know it's always different when Alabama's there, and it was a totally different feel. I mean, the lobby was absolutely packed. Uh, there was so much media and on Radio Row and upstairs. It was almost hard to walk around at times. So I know uh, the feel is completely different uh, when you have, when you get a chance to speak with Coach Saban. I got a chance to do that. It's a, just a surreal experience, and you realize, you know, what a, just what how in, all encompassing Alabama football is. But now I think one thing I enjoyed with the Crimson Tide takeovers, you and Chris Springland did a very good job of uh, kind of going over and going uh, and covering the Avery Johnson hire for basketball. And so many Alabama fans are excited about that now. And I know uh, that you guys will do such a great job once that begins. And, and now there's going to be so much energy uh, and excitement going from uh, football to basketball. And I think, uh, I, I, you know, I, it's kind of blasphemous to say this because Alabama football is always going to be number one. But I think it's going to be the most anticipated Alabama basketball uh, season and season opener in a long, long time and probably almost as anticipated as the kickoff against Wisconsin. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, obviously, Alabama in general, the state doesn't have the best rap for college basketball, but I had a chance to sit down with Avery Johnson. I've met him. Um, he is an incredible guy. He has so much energy, so many positive things to say. Uh, I could not agree more with you that there is so much excitement around this basketball season, and I have no doubt that Coach Johnson is definitely going to deliver for the fans and for the university. I mean, he's doing a lot of recruiting. I know that people were saying, you know, he was an NBA coach. He doesn't know how to recruit. Uh, whatever they were saying, but he is doing a great job of recruiting. He's out there on the recruiting trail, and um, I don't, I don't think he's going to disappoint fans. That's for sure. Hannah, tell me a little bit about what it's been like for you so far uh, in, in the limited workings you've had. What's it been like dealing with Nick Saban? Um, you know, I, I've had some experience with Coach Saban because when I was at Comcast Sports Southeast in Atlanta, um, Alabama was my beat along with Georgia. So we would come to press conferences, and I got a couple funny Saban press conference stories. But um, I had interviewed him that way, you know, asking him questions um, in a press conference form. I've been to a ton of Alabama games on the sidelines covering um, him. But, you know, we walked in with him at media days and, you know, met coach for the first time kind of officially and asked him a couple more questions at press conference. But the, the interaction there is very limited. I mean, you know, coach is doing his own thing. You know, he's a very busy schedule at media days. But 
we don't have a whole lot of contact with him. Um, so it's just one of those things that we get to interview him, we get to interview with him. I'm looking forward to working with him on the Nick Saban show on Thai TV this fall. So, yeah, like you said, very limited uh, so far in that aspect. But um, I guess that'll progress as this fall comes around. No doubt, Hannah. And I know that had to be a thrill for you. It was for me as well, getting the chance to be around Coach Saban. It's a it's a different experience and kind of a different feel. But, again, I know uh, we're looking forward uh, to what, to what uh, you and Christopher England bring to the Nick Saban show this fall. Uh, we're hoping, And, of course, the expectations, as always, at Alabama are going to be very high. And uh, we know that the, pr- the production is going to be very good. Everyone always – looks forward uh, to uh, Tide TV when it starts up. You guys do a great job of also covering practice and when fall camp begins. And I know uh, that you and Chris are are probably both very excited about what you can bring uh, the Tide Nation uh, when fall camp starts in just a couple of weeks. Because, as you said, it's been slow so far. But once August hits, it's for for the next several months, and really six months, it's going to be a very busy time. But I know you're very excited to get started. Oh, yeah, well, well, first of all, thank you for all of that. You know, I know the team works really hard. I haven't been here for a football season yet, so um diving right in this fall. So thank you for that. But I am thrilled to be working with Christopher and um, putting together really great content. I know as soon as uh report is on the August 5th, first practice is the very next day on the 6th, and we cover every practice. We put highlights up. We put drills. We put features up, all kind of stuff on RollTide.com. And then when the, this week in uh, this week in Crimson Tide, this week on Tide TV. Uh, as soon as that starts, we start putting up features and the Nick Saban show. So endless content as soon as fall comes around. And I haven't been here, like I said, for a football season. So I'll be fresh and really excited to dive right into the football season here. But um, thank you. And I'm looking forward to being right a part of all that great production that they do. And I know you got to go. So this will be the final question. Uh, you know, it used to be said that Ole Miss might lose the game, but they'd always win the party. Yeah. Last year, they won both. They won both last year. So can you even begin to imagine how crazy Bryant-Denny Stadium is going to be on that Saturday night when the Rebels come calling later this fall? Just, just, what, how do you picture that unfolding, and, and how will it affect you as A, an alum, and B, a, a reporter? Oh, Carrie, I was waiting for you to ask me this question. You know, I was down on the field the entire game last year for that. I had a game day pass and was a a part of all of that madness, the first game day in the Grove, and my dad was there with me. It was really, really an incredible experience. And then I was standing right there when they started ripping down the goalposts, and I go, I mean, I'm 26 years old. I was 25 at the time. I'm like, do I stand here and celebrate with the students, or do, do I walk away? Like, I wasn't exactly sure what to do. I was kind of a little struck, stuck, you know, kind of stuck in the mud when they were bringing that goalpost down. But um, obviously going to be completely objective, have my reporter hat on, um, not pulling for either team. I'm going to be extremely neutral. Obviously my heart goes to Ole Miss, but my paycheck's coming from Alabama, Carrie. So um going to be extremely neutral, and I think that it's going to be a really great game. I know it's a – 8.30 kickoff or 8.35, 8 o'clock, and it was a night game in Tuscaloosa. I can I have no predictions for you because it's going to be such a great game. Obviously, the Rebels are going to be fired up, and then Alabama is going to be, you know, looking for revenge and 
going to want them. But you're right. We won the game. Or, excuse me, Ole Miss won. I'm still getting used to the we. Ole Miss won the game and the party last year, so that was great. But this year I have no prediction, not pulling any for any team. I'm going to, you know, see how the game plays out and um, hopefully hop back on the radio with you guys after that game and we can, we can talk about what happened. Oh, we'll be glad to schedule you for the uh, Thursday or Wednesday. We might be changing the Wednesday. We'll be glad to schedule you for that. But it's okay to let the occasional we slip out. This is this is kind of a, a homework show. Two of the three of us are Bama grads, and, and Drew's a lifetime fan. And, you know, you, you, you're acclimating very well, Hannah, because I have seen you with a houndstooth skirt on at times. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm new to Tuscaloosa. I've been here three months. I was worried about moving back to a college town after bouncing around cities and Tuscaloosa is a great town. It's not just a college town. It's a it's a city, and there's a lot of things to do, and I've met a lot of great people that I work with. So acclimating great, and there's no better college football team to work for than Alabama. So roll tide. Oh, you didn't even have to ask for it. Wow. Yeah, well, <laughs> Hannah. so much, Hannah. Thank you Hannah, so we, much. Hannah, uh, we, we thank you for joining us today. And, again, welcome to the Alabama family. We look forward to your work on the Crimson Tide Sports Network, and uh, we know you're going to do a great job, and we look forward to seeing uh, in just a couple of weeks when it cranks up with you and Christopher England. But we, we uh, appreciate the time and about the 15 minutes with us tonight. We know you're going to be very busy, and we look forward to talking with you soon down the road on BAMS Radio. Thank you, guys, and I'm willing to come back anytime, so just let me know. I'll let you know. And, again, folks, that was first-time guest Hannah Chalker of Crimson Tide Productions an old Miss grad who is now part of the Alabama family and a very, very nice young lady. Uh, I'll share with you guys the way that I met Hannah the first time. It was Drew the, the, the night that Alabama uh, had the dramatic comeback uh, in softball to uh, put Oklahoma out on the Marissa Runyon Grand Slam. There were so many people wanting to cover that super, re- that super regional that they had some of us sitting outside on, on temporary tables with our laptops and power sources and such. And when the game was over, I came in uh, to do the interviews with Coach Murphy and the players and uh, the Oklahoma players as well, and there really wasn't a seat available, but Hannah saw my quandary, and just she's such a nice person, and she volunteered to move her purse so I would be allowed to sit my old butt down instead of having to stand up for what it reminded to be about a 20, 25-minute interview session. So very nice person, very professional broadcaster, uh, originally from Atlanta, and an old Miss grad and a former employee of SEC Digital Network, now employed by the University of Alabama, Hannah Chalker. And she will be back with us. Look, she's probably one we need to schedule about once a month, I would think, Drew, because I think she's going to be a real hit with the listeners. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, and Christopher England does a really solid job as well. Saw him at SEC Media Days, and I know Hannah was a lot like, was uh, definitely over, over there as well. And it was a great atmosphere uh, in Hoover and uh, – I thought Coach Saban did a great job. Kenyon Drake, I thought he did. I watched his press conference as well as uh, Reggie Raglan and Ryan Kelly. I thought they all represented very well. And Kenyon certainly looks very, very good. Looks like he's 220 pounds, as I've been told, and recently clocked at 4.3840. And so he's a he, – I think I, – I voted for him carry on my all-SEC ballot in the top four backs in the league. He should have been in the all-purpose category, but he wasn't. Uh, so they just put him in the running backs. I didn't put Derrick Henry up there, so I, it was hard. I, I wanted to put two Alabama backs in the top four, but there's so many great backs in the league, and you've got to put Nick Chubb and Leonard Fournette up there. But I put that was Kenyon, my four. I put Kenyon Drake, and 
And then my fourth was Jalen Hurd of Tennessee. I, I think he's a very, very good player. And I was very imp- impressed with him last year with the balls. And uh, I, I look for him to, um, you know, make a, uh, a make an improvement this year. And then I asked Butch Jones about Alvin Kamara and Hurd. And he had a very telling comment about Kamara. He said, all Kamara's done is be quiet and play football at Tennessee. And the first thing that went through my mind, if he had just shut his yap, and uh, done his job at Alabama, he'd be playing right now. A very talented athlete. Uh, too bad now they're going to have to crack his sternum when he comes uh, to Bryant-Denny Stadium. And Reggie Ragland has remained friends with Alvin. He called his brother uh, during an interview yesterday, and uh, he's predicting big things for Alvin at Tennessee, too. And, Drew, I talked a little bit about this before you came on, but I want to go over it again for anyone that joined us late and uh, – and, and, you know, I talked to you about this on your show yesterday, but when I asked Reggie Ragland, you know, who stood out to him in 707, he named Ronnie Harrison, Kendall Sheffield, and Mika Fitzpatrick off the top of his head. When I asked about offense, he added Damian Harrison, Calvin Ridley. All that is music to the ears of the listeners, Drew. But something else that I didn't know until I read the story this morning, I, because I didn't have time to get to Ryan Kelly. You can only be one place at a time, you know. And Ryan was asked that question about linemen. And the only name he volunteered, and, and this is, hey, all hell to Redfish Barger. The name that Ryan Kelly said has impressed him most, Drew, is one Brandon Kennedy. No doubt, Kerry. Brandon Kennedy, I really like his potential. And I still think he's going to have to red shirt. But I still think down the road, you know, remember Ryan Kelly had the red shirt as well. And down the road, I still think he's going to be a very fine player. Could end up being the successor to Ryan to uh, the the senior from Ohio and uh, Ryan is uh, I was not surprised he was uh, chosen as one of the three guys to represent the tie. I think he's going to be a big time leader on offense and uh, I don't we'll see if he's uh, how much he's improved and if he's going to be a better football player than Barrett Jones and and, and end up going to uh, with an NFL future. I think he's very athletic. I still think there's some size issues there maybe. But I still think he's a very, very good college player. You don't really worry about the NFL right now. Uh, he's a three-year starter, and he's versatile. He can play guard. He's even the backup left tackle right now. But I, I think after hopefully after fall camp, that won't have to be the case anymore. But going into fall camp, I believe he's the backup left tackle. So he's very, very athletic. So well, we're gonna we're gonna see uh, you know how where the how the offensive line comes along, but. I'm that's proud to hear about uh, Brandon Kennedy and not surprised at all. Uh, he, he was uh, somebody that I thought of him. I had to sign last year from Wetumpka. And, uh, and Brandon, he's, I saw him in a boot at the state softball tournament back in May, but I'm sure he'll be healthy for fall camp. But I think Mario Cristobal is doing work, and I think uh, by the time they ink the next recruiting class, and we're going to talk recruiting with John Garcia starting off in the next hour, but I think Alabama is going to be as talented from one – to uh, to uh, 15, 16, whatever you want to call it, on the offensive line, as anyone in college football. And you know, uh, I will say this: Mario Cristobal's taking some criticism. Some people think the offensive line's not playing as physical. Everybody needs to wake up, in my opinion. They're, they talk about the 2012 offensive line that you lose Barrett Jones, who is one of the most versatile and most decorated players in Tide history, and then DJ Fluker, who will be a 10-year plus pro. Uh, making a ton of money and was a first-round draft pick. And then Chance Warmack, the same inside at guard, first-round draft pick. When you lose three great players like that, and, of course, when and Jeff Stallard had not recruited very well on the O-line, you got to restock the cupboard. He still was able to coach up Ari Kwanjo, 
into a first-team All-American last year. Ryan Kelly has improved. I think you'll see much more out of Dom Jackson. And we saw how much from spring to fall Cam Robinson improved and was a freshman All-American who only gave up three sacks in his entire freshman season. So I think Mario Cristobal has done a good job, and the Alabama O-line is only going to get better. It will. It will. And we're going to find out a little bit more next hour. And next hour has already started, but we're going to take a quick break before we come back and talk to John Garcia about recruiting and the opening and, and other developments regarding Christmas Tide football. But for now, we are going to take a break. You're listening to BAMS Radio, a member of the Bama Sports Radio family. With SEC Media Days upon us, the kickoff of the college season is just around the corner, and you know you're going to want at least get at least one game this fall. When you start looking for tickets, you've got to check out the SeatGeek app. It's the best way for fans to save money on Alabama tickets, and it's 100% free service. SeatGeek, excuse me, I can talk, SeatGeek aggregates tickets from every major ticket site online and puts them all in one place to make comparison shopping for tickets easy. It's basically like kayak.com for sports and concert tickets. When you're ready to buy your tickets, you can snag a great deal right from your phone with just two taps on your app. There's really no better way to find your Alabama football tickets this season. Personally, this is Thomas. My girlfriend and I are going to go to a Houston Astros game, and we use SeatGeek to find our tickets. SeatGeek also has a technology called DealScore that calculates what every ticket in the building is worth and whether the price you might pay for that ticket is a good or bad deal. Good deals are represented as big green dots on the map, and bad deals are shown as small red dots. So it's easy to see at a glance which tickets will save you the most money. No other ticketing app has features like this. This week only, use promo code BAMA, that's B-A-M-A, in the SeatGeek app and get a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase. It will take less than a minute to download the app today. To redeem your promo code and save $20 on tickets, download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code BAMA in the app. SeatGeek will then send you $20 once you've made your first SeatGeek purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app today and enter the promo code BAMA. The SeatGeek app is your ticket to Alabama football tickets.
Welcome back to Bams Radio. It's currently five minutes after the hour. Uh, it's in the central time zone. It's eight, Eastern, nine, and I'm not going to go down the rest of them. But wherever you are, we're glad to have you with us on Bams Radio. Very interesting and fun first hour. Back-to-back blondes with Paige Hockman and Hannah Chalker. And Big C got, was the recipient of the Thomas Watts hobnail steel-toed boots. So really fun times in the first hour. So uh, that's okay. We're going to be joined in just a couple minutes by John Garcia of Scout.com, who was able to attend the opening in Oregon last week. I'm sure he's got some great stories. In fact, I know he does because I've read a few of them. But he can verbalize them, too, because John's a broadcasting major. And uh, still got uh, Drew DeArmond of ESPN 97.7 The Zone with us, and Thomas Watts from Touchdown Alabama Magazine, and I'm still Kerry Clark from BamaMag.com. Uh, Drew, uh, we didn't get to talk about it uh, in detail, but while we wait for John, Tell us what a thrill it was for you to do a one-on-one with Nick Saban. Uh, it was uh, a dream come true. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I got in broadcasting was a chance to uh, interact with someone of the caliber of Coach Saban. Uh, got to give a big shout out to uh, Cedric, his assistant, who's been around Alabama for 27 years, and he really hooked us up. Uh, and, and of course, Wes Neighbors, uh, working uh, at my station and, and being a former player. Uh, they were able to uh, give us a chance to have the uh, the privilege of interviewing Coach Saban for about eight minutes. And, you know, Hannah was talking about they were out of there at 1230 and done. Well, one of the last things they did was come on our, maybe the last, was to come on uh, 97.7 The Zone. It was the first appearance for Coach Saban on our station, and it was an honor to be able to interview him on my show and get a chance to ask two or three questions to, uh, in my opinion, a Hall of Fame coach. And uh, as I said, the best coach in college football or at least very, on the very short list, is one of the best. And uh, he was uh, very accommodating to us and very uh, uh, and gave us a lot of great info and, and insight into the Alabama program. And we just look forward to having him on some more and continuing to build uh, that relationship. And uh, I think that Alabama's got a chance to have a really good football team this fall, Kerry. Uh, but they just got to, as Coach Saban said, have a quarterback take the bull by the horns and this is the first fall camp in my mind going in uh, during Coach Saban's tenure uh, that he they, they don't know who was going to take the first snap. I think they felt good last year that Blake Sims was going to be the guy against West Virginia. I really honestly don't think they know who's going to take that first snap yet against the Badgers. Well, they don't know for sure, but they, they've got a good idea. Like I said, Jake would have to royally screw up August practice. Well, the, the scrimmage is going to be huge, Gary. I mean, excuse me, I didn't mean to uh, to interrupt, but the, the scrimmages are going to be huge this fall. I mean, they're going to he's going to have to really be consistent. And Coach Saban mentioned that he talked about the consistency of Jake Coker. He's got to be more consistent. And for I, and personally, I want to say this to the Alabama Nation: I'm rooting for Jake Coker. He's waited for his turn, much like Blake Sims has. Uh, he's, he grew up in the state of Alabama, so he didn't go to Alabama at first because they didn't recruit him as aggressively until late in his senior year. But he now has a golden opportunity. And the keys that he's been given to the car carry uh, are very, very high. It's, it's like a, a brand-new Porsche, and uh, he's got a lot of weapons. And, you know, there's a lot of media attention talking about who's going to play wide receiver, who's going to make plays for Alabama. Uh, you know, I, I don't worry about that at all. And I'm And what I'm hoping is, O.J. Howard, well, he's toughened up and is going to come into his own in his junior year. And if he has done that, and if Dom Jackson can uh, continue to improve and get coached up by Mario Cristobal, 
I think, you know, if you can get some consistency out of Jake Coker, if he can just protect the football, I still think they're going back to a ground-and-pound philosophy. They're going to get the ball to Kenyon Drake, who I, I, I firmly believe could have a his breakout year. I predicted at SEC Media Days he might be a guy that has 1,000 yards rushing and 600 yards receiving. Most Baldwin, was, he kind of questioned that. He wasn't sure that, you know, Kenyon would get enough touches to get 1,000 yards. But like Travis Ryer said on my show, they had uh, a nine nine a nine hundred ninety yard rusher in uh, in uh, the King last year as the backup about nine eighty out of uh, T J Yeldon and that was what was considered a down year for the or just a, an average year for the running game. I think they're going to go back to pounding it and with Kenyon he won't need as many touches because you'll see the big plays in mind the explosive plays. Yeah, and thank goodness for this they are planning to use Kenyon on kickoff returns. I am absolutely thrilled about that, Drew. Oh yeah, non words. Uh, Kenya Drake on kickoff returns. I'm going to say right here, this is not going out on them, but I'm going to say right here that he is going to take at least one to the house's fault. Don't know who it is. I hope it's Jordan Hare. I don't know, but it's going to take at least one kickoff to the house. That being said, uh, a man that takes it to the house every time we bring him on, Bams Radio, is now on hold, and I'm going to go ahead and bring him on to the Big Head Barbecue Hotline. John Garcia of Scout.com and BamaMag.com, who is a, a busy man this time of year. You just think nothing's going on with football. Uh, recruiting, John, they say, is like shaving, and recruiting coverage is like shaving. Skip a day, look like a bum. You never look like a bum. Welcome in, John Garcia. What's going on, buddy? Fellas, fellas, always good to be back. Yeah, you're right. It never stops, certainly. Uh, always something new. We learn something new even when we think we have it all figured out. That's the beauty of it. John, you had a chance last week to go again to Oregon to the opening uh, wall-to-wall, five- and four-star prospects. I, I don't even know where to begin. But why don't you give me some uh, overall impressions and then some individual impressions of what you saw. Well, the names Alabama fans are very familiar with, I thought had some good showings. I thought there was a lot of validation out there among some commitments and certainly some of the top targets. We'll start with commitments. You know, I thought uh, Shaheen Carter was one of the guys I wanted to see the most because he's so versatile and he does a little bit of everything for his high school team, but I really wanted to see him at corner the whole week. You know, I wanted to see how he uh, rebounded from maybe struggling at, at points here and there, uh, how he bounced back or his mentality. Because uh, he's a quiet kid otherwise. And he sort of proved that, that he is a true cornerback prospect. He actually had a very slow start to the open. One-on-ones were not his best friend that first day, but he got better during that day. And then the next two days in seven-on-seven competition, he was one of the better cornerbacks that I saw, so certainly a lot of positivity there for Alabama fans. Constantly getting his hands on the football, excellent burst, excellent top-end speed, and I think he clocked right around 4-4 flat laser time at the open, so he checked most of the boxes that I wanted to see from him uh, as a cornerback prospect over the, the broad scope of the week. Uh, Najee Harris, the 2017 five-star, as advertised, Terry, this kid is smooth on the football field. He's not going to go out there and run 4-3, but he's a bigger kid. He checked in at 6-2-2-15. And think about that. 6-2-2-15 as a, a rising junior in high school is very big. And then when the ball was in the air, he looked like a wide receiver going and getting it. Everything was very natural, very fluid. Again, he's not a burner. But when he caught the ball, he made people miss. And remember, this 7-on-7, seven seven, this is one hand touching your down 7-on-7 seven seven against who are a year older than him. And he made a lot of guys miss after make, making that first catch. So that means he misses completely, not just breaking a tackle. So certainly a lot of uh, elusiveness uh, and fluidity 
with Najee Harris, living up to his own five-star ranking. Um, and then the big boys, Kendall Jones, Raekwon Davis, both very impressive. Jones, I, I thought, sort of did I, what I think most of us thought he would do. You know, he was flash dominant on one rep and then maybe look a little lost on the next rep. I think that's okay from a guy who's, you know, 370 pounds. He's not supposed to win every rep, have the stamina to go every single rep and beat, you know, a four- or five-star center or guard. Um, he had big-time battles with Bavion Johnson, the Florida State commitment. Those guys would literally dominate each other and go back and forth with it. So I think that's, that's sort of what you want to see with Kendall Jones. You just want him to flash as much as possible, and he certainly flashed at times. Just immense power, immense strength. He's going to need to polish up his technique, maybe work on his quickness a little bit at first step. Um, but the size, the power, and, and sort of the grit is there. He got into a nice little scuffle with Kentucky commitment, Drake Jackson, who had an excellent week. He's another kid who actually has a Bama offer. Um, but Raekwon Davis, uh, I thought, Kerry, the surprise of the entire week. You know, this kid came in as a three-star offensive lineman on scout. You you know how I feel about him. I think his frame, 6'7", 318, screams offensive tackle. He's super athletic, very long, and strong with his punch. So, to me, he screams offensive tackle down the line. But for this week, switched it up and wanted to just play on the defensive line. Uh, he actually got invited to play both, but just wanted to play defense at this event, and he was flat-out dominant. Unbelievable power. He had as much power as Hulk Jones, but with 60 less pounds and a, a longer frame, which is easier for an offensive player to get under his pads. But even with that disadvantage, he dominated as much as any other defensive lineman not named Rashawn Gary, which was the number one player in the country. Um, he, he really held his own and it put a lot of big-time offensive linemen on their backs, and he ended up shooting way up the rankings after what we saw. And, and I think it's most important, at the opening at least, for these, these big guys because we get to see them in pads. So to see Raekwon dominate in pads as a defensive lineman I think was extremely surprising. He jumped 200 spots on scout and is now inside the top 150 in America as a new four-star defensive line projection for us. Um, so the commitments pretty much held their own through and through in terms of the Alabama guys. The targets really excited about Ben Davis. Every time I see him, the kid gets so much better. When I first saw him, I thought, he was a versatile guy, but more of an inside guy who can maybe cover a little bit. Now I'm all in with him being probably an outside guy who can play inside if needed. I think he's that good. I think he's that versatile. And he earned his fifth star out at the opening. He's now the number 15 player in the country because he was among the best coverage linebackers. And he also happened to be, I think, the second biggest linebacker in attendance. 6'4", 237 pounds. He was a big kid. He should not be able to run well. And I'm not talking about the 40-yard dash. I'm talking about running with Isaac Nava, running with some of these four- and five-star type tight ends on a consistent basis and making plays on them as well. So Ben Davis was as impressive as any Alabama target in attendance. And then, of course, a lot of the, the, the big names to know. We mentioned Rashawn Gary. He looked as dominant as he did at any point in his high school career did nothing to take away from his number one ranking. I think he's as secure as we've seen a number one in, in a while, maybe maybe in, in two, three, four years, really very a secure number one type prospect uh, at the defensive tackle spot. And then on the other side of the ball, Greg Little, a guy that Alabama fans really want to know about, dominant. 
I mean, the offensive line coach there, Todd Hubert, he uh, organizes the whole O-line, D-line. That, you know, he puts together the 40 linemen that get invited to the opening. And his words were, at this point in his career, more technically sound than Cam Robinson and Martez Ivy. Those are the last two reigning number one offensive tackles. So for Greg Little to be ahead of them in any respect is a monster compliment. Um, and it's no surprise why Alabama and many others are going all in to get this cornerstone left tackle. And, of course, it would be ironic if Little ended up replacing Cam Robinson, which at this point seems like a fairly high possibility. And, John, another target I know you got a chance to see that I know impressed you from a size standpoint that Alabama fans have watched closely and heard a lot about uh, in this cycle is uh, from Miami, Florida, obviously, uh, Darnell Solomon. Big kid, man. I, I knew he was big just because, you know, we, we see his, his height and weight and all that. Um, but he was he really felt like a legitimate 6'3", 210. This kid looks like a starting, you know, possession wide receiver in the NFL. He didn't have the greatest week I'd ever seen, you know, because he's not a speed guy. So he's, he didn't have the Calvin Ridley burst or the separation that a lot of people are looking for in, the, in that thrive at events like this where it's seven on seven minimal physicality things like that so not necessarily his cup of tea from an event standpoint but still solid enough to make make tough catches be physical he uses his hands very well he's just not the flashy type of receiver and when i told some other evaluators there i said that's okay you know we everyone cannot be this you know four four vertical threat you know, that gets all the oohs and all. Everyone cannot be that type of wide receiver. You need balance. You need somebody to move the chains on third and six. And that's exactly what Solomon is to me. He's got that big physical body. Um, again, long arms, fights for the football. Could be a little bit more disciplined in his routes. And he, I'm sure he knows that, and he knows he probably needs to work on his explosion just a tad. But, again, with the full pads on for a guy like that, there's, there's very little debate uh, with his talent. Is he a five-star? I'm not sure if he is, but certainly he's in that top 100-type conversation and a clear four-star guy who, who's going to be a big-time pickup for whichever school he picks here in the next couple of weeks, which uh, at this point, Alabama, again, in very, very good shape. John, I should know this, but was Mac Wilson out there? He was out there. Mac was out there. Uh, I thought he did very well. You know, he lost his number one spot in Alabama for us, but I think it was more a hat tip to, to Ben Davis's excellent week than a knock on him at all. He actually didn't even move in the national scope. Still, uh, I think, number 38 in the country for us, or a top 40 guy nationally. That, that's obviously high praise. Uh, he'll still challenge for a fifth star his senior season. But with Max, we wanted to see that, that true versatility like we've seen with Ben. You know, he came in as advertised as a guy who could do a little bit of everything. So we just want to see that a little bit more consistently. But he did run well. What I like about Mac is is that he didn't try to pull any punches. He played how he plays in seven on seven competition. He did not like alter his game like some of these other guys did. You know, he played. He read his keys the same way, and he came downhill the same way as if he was going to hit somebody. And anyone who's seen him play knows that's one of the first things you notice. Listen, he's a thumper. You know, the early evaluation on him was. You know, he's a little bit smaller, Reuben Foster type of linebacker. That was the early, you know, two years ago eval of Mac Wilson. So he still has that in him. He has that killer instinct, and literally, I want to knock your face off when I hit you. And what I liked about him is that he didn't turn that off at the opening. Now, he didn't hit anybody, but you could tell that he was really chomping at the bit, too, and he was satisfied with being in the right position at the right time. Again, it's hard for linebackers to stand out, which is 
another indication of why Ben Davis was so good and why Ben Davis received the bump he did. Um, but he certainly, Max certainly held his own. He was actually on the same team with all of those Alabama commitments, Shai Carter, Miller Forrestal, Najee Harris, uh, Jaquan Uli. He played next to Jaquan Uli and ruined with Jaquan Uli, the Alabama commitment, the entire time. And I think watching that team play as much as I did, I saw at least five of their games. You know, you could tell which guy was the outside guy who, who could maybe play inside and you and knew which guy was the true inside linebacker. And that was Uli, big, thick kid, let him play tackle to tackle. Uh, you know, work on the pass when he can, and, and Mac was much more athletic, break on the football, maybe even run with some receivers. Mac, very good straight line speed. I question some of the lateral stuff with him, but again, depending on his position, depending on what he's asked to do, you know, that might not be a big detractor at the next level. Certainly an elite prospect, uh, but just didn't have the same week than Danny had. And John, someone that I've been very intrigued with since he burst onto the scene uh, this summer and with a excellent camp performance and was offered just the, was offered at the camp and then committed just a couple of weeks later before the opening is a Miller Forstall of Cartersville, Georgia, the tight end. Uh, how did he, what kind of week did he have and what, what was your impressions of him as a prospect? You know, he was one I wanted to see, of course, because he had blown up through the summer. You know, four months ago, the kid's biggest offer was Jacksonville State, you know, and now he's a Bama commit that committed to Bama over all these other great offers because of what he did at camp. So Forrestal's best performance was in one-on-one on on that very first competition competition day, actually last Wednesday, when it was just one-on-one, you know, tight end versus safety or corner, what have you. He was beating some of those elite guys we've talked about over the last couple of months in one-on-one competition. He runs very good routes. He's not the fastest guy, but has a pretty good burst and he can get to top speed pretty quickly. And then, He's got that range. You know, he's six foot five, two ten, so he kind of looks like a wide receiver right now, but he makes uh, very good catches, and he's a very natural pass catcher despite being so new to the tight end position. Um, but when it came to seven on seven, kind of up and down, you know, in traffic, maybe a couple of drops, a couple of, um, I guess, expected things to see from a guy who's so new to the position. Finding the holes in the zone wasn't quite as natural as you would like, but again, the kid has never really done it on a consistent basis. So the good thing for Alabama fans with him is that the tangible stuff, how he looked, how fluid he was, his hands, those things were all, you know, all those boxes were checked. So everything else is something you can work on. It's something that you get better with, you know, with, with the, more, the more reps you take at tight end, finding the holes in the zone, knowing how to set up a defender in the middle of the route as opposed to just running the route, things like that. Those are things you're going to have to work on with time. But again, the raw potential is there, the size is there, and, and, you know, good news for Bama fans, he's rock solid. Probably the most solid Alabama commitment among out-of-state prospects. Obviously, the in-state guys, T.J. Simmons, uh, Deontay Brown, those guys are rock solid. But out-of-state-wise, Miller Forrestal might be the most solid Alabama commitment in this 2016 group. So a lot of positivity coming from his performance. He was really excited to be there. And obviously, it's safe to say his best football way ahead of him at this point. John, you mentioned him briefly, but how did Uli look to you? He looked pretty good. You know, Uli knows he's not a cover guy. You know, he's 250 pounds, downhill. He is the thumper that we saw Matt Wilson was two years ago. Uli is that. He's a nasty kid. Um, so, he's, you know, he, he knows that is his weakness. And he came to the opening wanting to prove, hey, I can cover at least a little bit. So, he did actually a little better than I thought in, in one-on-ones running with some of those running backs, and in 7-on-7, 
I'll say this, he was not a liability for that Alpha Pro defense. Again, I mentioned Mac Wilson was flanking him on one side. Uh, some safeties were playing on the other side. It was a very good defensive group, so he wasn't the, the big weak link that other schools or, excuse me, other uh, seven-on-seven teams picked up on and started attacking. He was never that. Certainly, you know, he wasn't going to be able to cover Isaac Nata one-on-one for the duration of the game, but there were a few occasions where he was on him one-on-one, and he didn't get embarrassed. So if that's something to put stock in, you know, he certainly held his own in that regard. Again, he knows he's not a cover guy, and we know he's not a cover guy. That's not uh, his cup of tea, but the kid competed all week long, and he really wanted it all week long. I was impressed with that. He didn't get frustrated. He didn't get down on himself. Maybe if he did give up a touchdown, you know, in a seven-on-seven game or anything like that. He was sort of a rally guy. He was a rah-rah guy, uh, a leader, definitely, a guy who always wanted to get his team up. So his confidence is always fairly high. Uh, he, he always tries to keep everyone else at that same level. So I was just as impressed with that as his ability to compete and then kind of keep the fight going um, with Jaquan Lee again. This event, definitely not tailored for him, uh, but he still came out and, and really gave a pretty good showing compared to what we thought heading into the week. So certainly nothing to uh, to sneeze at with what Jaquan Lee put on the field at the opening. Well, and, and John, two guys that I'm very intrigued about that I know our BAMS audience is following closely, uh, you know, both of them, uh, including I think one was on at Alabama's campus today, but I'm very intrigued by I think Alabama's going to take one to two more defensive backs, and uh, I, I really like uh, Nigel Knott and Nigel Warrior. What were your impressions of those two guys? They were both very solid. Well, I, my favorite thing about both of them, you know, I'm a former DB, so I'm all about technique and, and timing and being reliable. Those two, as reliable as the secondary duo as you saw at the opening. Now. The difference between the two is Warrior plays safety, and of course, uh, Nigel Knott plays corner. Now, Knott is not very tall. You know, he's about my height, 5'8, five, 5'9 five, at best, but he's very long. His arms are long, and he is a testing champion. I think he ran a bunch of 4'3s, jumped close to 40 inches. I mean, the guy, you know, if he makes it to the NFL, he is going to destroy the NFL combine. I think that is very clear. But on the field, certainly that height is, is something to keep, I guess, keep an eye on, I should say. You know, he did get picked on a little bit there. He was ironically also on that same team. So he was starting at corner opposite Shaheen Carter a lot of the time. So once, you know, Shai started locking down side A, side B started looking pretty good, and Nigel Mott was sort of the victim of that at least a little bit, definitely against Juwan Pass on the final day of 7-on-7. Seven seven. He sort of picked on Nigel Mott a little bit with, with one of the 6'4 receivers out there. But again, 6'4 guy against a 5'9", 5'10 guy. You know, that, that guy's going to win more times than not. But, again, not competed, and he was always in position. It wasn't like he was getting jumped over. He was at the apex right around where that 6'4 guy was. So when you have a smaller corner, you have to have those requirements. You need to be able to jump out of the gym, have long lines, and play the football as well uh, so that he can meet those expectations where those 6'4 receivers can sort of, you know, get, get to the apex at one point. So you've got to be able to compete at the apex. And he did that. So I think that was big for him. Um, but for Warrior, man, he might have been the best DB I saw all week at the opening. And it wasn't because of his one-on-one skills. The one-on-one, he was solid, not great. Command of his secondary. It's automatically his secondary when he's on the field. And you talk about ball skills and savvy. This kid understands the route three. And he, he easily led the entire field in interceptions. I think he had five in one day, 
I mean, the, the kid understands where the football is going, and he knows how to break on it, and he knows how to secure it. He's the opposite of Nigel Knott when it comes to testing. He's not going to be 4-3 in a 40-inch vertical and all this stuff. He's going to be, you know, average to above average in testing. He probably, I don't even know what he ran. He probably ran mid 4-5 and, and jumped, you know, 33 inches, something like that, which is okay if you're really technical and if you're really smart, and that's exactly what Nigel Warrior is. I think he's got an argument, you know, in this class of 2016 to be the top safety in the group. Again, he's not going to do it by testing. He's not going to do it by big hits or anything like that. But when the football's in the air and there's a, a passing scheme against him, he's going to figure it out before most of those other guys. And that is, for me as a DB evaluator, that's something that you cannot teach. That only comes with repetition and comes with savvy, uh, something you're sort of born with or, or you've learned through a ton of film study and things like that. So for him to do that against these elite quarterbacks and these elite wide receivers with with really minimal time to look at these guys and meet with these guys, I thought was as impressive as a scenario as we saw out of the opening night award. I was a huge fan of him coming into the opening because I knew on tape he showed all of those things. Uh, but you have a week to prepare for those guys on tape. You know, having to prepare you know minute by minute against all these teams and still performing that well. I thought that was extremely impressive, and I'm even a bigger fan of Nigel Warrior this week. John, two-part question here, but about the same prospects. A, how did Derrick Brown look? And B, did Alabama have a remote shot, or is it done via the Georgia Bulldogs? Who was the first guy? I'm sorry, Derrick Brown. Right. The the same two questions about Derrick Brown. A, how did he look to you last week? And B. Does Bama have a shot, or is it done deal to Georgia? Definitely not a done deal to Georgia. I'll get on that in a second. But Derek Brown looks good. I think what's tough for him, it's such a heavy defensive tackle year. I mean, we mentioned the number one player in the land is Rashawn Gary, and he's as good of a defensive tackle prospect as we've seen, certainly as I've seen uh, since I started uh, in this business. But there's seven guys in the top 25 in America, meaning they're five stars right now, seven of them are defensive tackles. So literally just under a third of the best players in the country are at the defensive tackle position. So it's a very deep group, and obviously number one is is a defensive tackle. So I think that sort of hurts the perception of Derrick Brown at an event like this. Individually, if you wouldn't look at anybody else and you just watched him all week, you would have said, man, that kid had a pretty good week. He stays low to the ground. He's very athletic for his size. But my favorite thing about him, he's got a little bit of that Deron Payne in him where he kind of he has this underlying confidence where he knows he's bigger and stronger than you, and he wants to prove it to you. And then he might let you know about it after he does the deed. So I, I think that's my favorite thing about Derrick Brown. He's got that edge to his game. Uh, it might not always be extremely vocal, but he certainly has. That Ed, that that Deron Payne had that that made me fall in love with him as a prospect, you know, over the last two years. So uh, in that respect, he had a very very good week again. One more than he lost, showed some dominance. He flashed more than Kendall Jones for comparison's sake. If you're looking to compare two guys who aren't Rashawn Gary, I think Brown had a better week than Kendall Jones. I mean, Jones had a bad week, but Brown was among the top four or five defensive lineman out there, and Jones is probably just outside of that point. So he had a very good week again, a powerful guy. This kid in any other class might be the number one defensive tackle prospect. In terms of 
his recruiting, certainly not a done deal to Georgia. I think Auburn is in the mix. Bama is definitely in the mix. You know, the kid has been to Bama a ton. He's just, I think that same edge with his uh, demeanor on the field, it, it just it completely flips off when he starts talking about recruiting. So I think he's one of those where he can almost, I don't want to say manipulated, he can be sort of moved by whoever the interviewer is, if that makes any sense to you guys. I think if you want to sit down and talk to him about Alabama, you write that story, I think after that point, there'll be a lot of Bama fans that say, man, we're going to get this kid. So I think sort of go all in with a program depending on the uh, what's presented to him. And I think that happens a little bit with him. And, of course, he's a state of Georgia guy, so naturally Georgia might get a little bit more of that than any other school. But I think, first of all, with him, recruiting is on the back burner. I really do believe that. I, I say that a lot, but with him, I, I know he is worried about today. He is worried. Of, he wants to be number one. You know, that kid wants to be number one in the country. I actually sat two seats away from him on the plane coming back to Atlanta from Portland, and that was really his focus. I, I, I mentioned recruiting here and there, kind of off the record, but he didn't want to talk about that. He didn't care about that right now. He wanted to, to come to the Sean Gary's throne. That's what his sort of goal was um, out at the opening. So I don't think he did quite that, but it does you know, certainly emphasize that he is not really focused on recruiting right now. And again, for a kid like that, he, he can be in that position. All of those schools we mentioned will certainly have a spot open for him should he select their school, you know, later in the process. So, so I'm not ready to call anybody the favorite at this point. Georgia, perceptionally, maybe you know, has always been in that spot, but again, not a done deal to Georgia by any stretch. Bama very much in it. I think other guys are higher on the board, like Rashawn Gary and perhaps a Rashard Lawrence, who's another five-star defensive tackle. But certainly, Derek Brown is in the mix and athletically. For his size, you know, I think he was he was among the top couple of guys on either side of the of the line at this event. He should not move as well as he does at his size. Well, I remember last year when I covered him, I remember how it freaked you out when I posted a picture of him in the wide receiver line pregame. So yeah, he's a great athlete. <laughs> best guy I saw last year. But John, the second best guy I saw last year was was Marlon Davidson. I'm a little puzzled why he was not at the opening. Well, he actually didn't compete at any of the opening regionals. He went to the Atlanta one um, just to support his guys. You know, he went with with Mac Wilson, Ben Davis, and those guys, but he did not compete. He was coming off of a little bit of a tweak. Uh, I believe it was an ankle or something like that. So, if he didn't compete, you know, you're not eligible to to go to the opening if, if Nike does not see you the event. You know, that's kind of the unique thing about it. Their their big Nike's big spiel is, you know, you've got to earn this. Your ranking isn't going to help you. It, it's all about guys who come out here and compete. Now, does that mean every single of oh, yeah, all 166 really deserved it? All 166 were really the best X amount of players at their position? Maybe not necessarily. Rankings do have something to do with it. I mean, we're all human here, so perception does have something to do with it. So maybe Marlon Davidson could have done a couple of reps and maybe still got invited to the opening. It wouldn't be the first time, and it certainly won't be the last time. But he elected not to participate, so that was sort of just a casualty of, of his decision. Again, he's he's a, a very quiet kid who probably doesn't even care about stuff like that, so he was not invited, so that's why he was uh, not out there competing. Would have loved to have seen him against uh, Greg Little. There's no doubt about that, because Rashawn Gary gave Greg Little all he could handle. Always, It would always be interesting to see where that, that next couple of guys could be. You know, Davidson is very highly thought of by a lot of people, but 
problem with is that we haven't seen him in pads against elite blockers. The, the best offensive lineman we've seen him go against in two years is Brandon Kennedy, who's also one of his closest friends. So uh, he he gave Kennedy the business, and Kennedy gave him the business. You know, during those last couple of meetings, however, um, there's not more of a sample size against elite guys in pads, and I think. Again, I, I've talked about this a ton. The fact that these guys are in pads at the opening, I think, is the, the best possible individual positional evaluation that any of us in this industry has over the summer. There's nothing like it. There's no, there's no hype like it, and there's no scrutiny around it. Those kids are, have pressure for those couple of days out in Oregon, so I would have loved to have seen Marlon Davidson uh, among them. Yeah, John, but... One of the uh, – I try not to get too riled up about the, the drills as far as the 40 times and the verticals and all the workout stuff, but one that very, intrigues me a, a heck of a lot because he's 250-plus pounds, and I still – I know LSU's made a huge push, but uh, is Devin White at Spring Hill, Louisiana. He clocks about a 4.49 at 250-plus pounds. Uh, what was your impressions of him at the opening, and uh, where does Alabama stand with him, do you believe? Well, Alabama's squarely in the mix here. He won't say it, you know, but but him and Rashard Lawrence, another top guy out of Louisiana, I've long thought both of those guys were going to come down to either Alabama, LSU, or Ole Miss. Um, so I think he is as squarely in there. Shea Patterson is his guy. Those guys were together the entire opening. That is his guy. So if Shea has anything to, to, to say about it, Devin White will end up at Ole Miss, which I think will be a big upset for the Rebels, but aside from that, on the field, I was a little disappointed in Devin. I'm not going to lie. You know, he clocked that 4-4 on the first day, and everybody sort of said, what? Is that real? You know, and you could debate that all you want, but he he looked fast. You know, he looked fast on that day, but when I saw him, he was working out at linebacker. He was actually on the same team as Markel Benson, you know, state of Alabama guy, and I'm very high on Benson. I think he could be a top 20 or 30 prospect in the nation in that 2017 class, and he will challenge for the number one spot in Alabama next year. He's number two right now. Um, so I, I know he was. I knew Benson would outshine White in an event like this, where it's about athleticism and making plays. And he weighs less than Devin White, so maybe he should outshine him. But I thought laterally, I, I thought he would be a little bit better, if I'm being completely honest. Uh, he looked a little heavy. As you said, he was about 250 pounds. He looked a little big to be playing running back, and you know, maybe that's why he didn't play as much running back as we thought. I have no idea what went into that decision. But he just looked a little big. He looked a little uncomfortable, almost like uh, when we saw Deron Payne at um, the Nike camp in March of last year. He just looked a, a tad too heavy. Nothing you can't change, obviously, with a couple of weeks or maybe a month of, of hard work and some discipline. But it just didn't look right for Devin White, even though we knew he was a bigger back, a bigger linebacker, but it's 7-on-7 seven seven again. Literally, he was much closer to Jaquan Lee coverage-wise than, than I think a lot of people would have uh, wanted in terms of the evaluation. You, you you would want him to be somewhere in between Ben Davis and Jaquan Lee, and he was much closer to Jaquan Lee on that spectrum. Actually, might have gotten his yeah, might, might have gotten involved less than Jaquan Lee did in terms of you know playing the passing lanes, getting his hands on the football. So he was a guy who Again, he is playing linebacker now, so hard for those guys to stand out. But he was a guy that was easy to miss, even if you watched him play more than one game, as I did. So, again, take that for what it's worth. Again, you said 
you know, you can't put a whole lot of stock in, in the testing or, or at the same time, you can't put a whole lot of stock in seven on seven because it's on air, no pads and things like that. We know what he can do with pads on, on a Friday night. I'm not taking anything away from that. His tape is as good as it gets in this out of the opening for what I saw a little underwhelmed by Devin White. Doesn't mean he can't make up for it. Doesn't mean he won't make up for it at one of these All-American games in January. I might eat a ton of crow and say, man, that kid's the best all-around prospect in 2016. That could very well happen, and I would welcome it. Uh, I'll, eat, I'll eat any crow that is assigned to me, but a little underwhelmed by Devin White overall at the opening, especially compared to some other guys like Davis, like Wilson, like Benton, like you, Lee, where he should have been in that conversation. He really wasn't, at least for me, at least from what I saw. Yeah, it, 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 but, it, but it makes you wonder, though, John, if he would get in shape, he's run in the four, you know, in the high four fours. What could he do? Uh, you know, if he if he was again, as you said, if he would lose a little weight, and if he had been uh, in better shape physically, it kind of makes you shake your head, thinking, you know, what kind of player this guy could be. And personally, I know you like him at linebacker, but I really like his tape at running back, and I'd like to see him. Uh, at the more around the 245, 250 range, and see what he could do. Yeah, you know, and after this week, you know, maybe that that's what convinces me to to want him to see him out running back as well, just like he drew. I mean, I think you know he just didn't move as well as I thought he could at linebacker at an event like this. Maybe he was just going a little too fast for him. Maybe he was just out of place. You know, those guys don't get a whole lot of time to meet with their defensive staff. Uh, at these events, they're playing so many games, and, and there's really no margin for error because if you mess up, it's a five-star receiver running by. It's not it's not some slappy from, you know, a small town in, in Louisiana. You know, this is a, a blue-chip guy. So, again, maybe it's a combination of all that. But uh, I agree, Drew. Maybe maybe it's time for me to consider him more of a running back than linebacker because of what I saw out of the opening. Because in, in 2015, if you're playing linebacker in college, you're going to have to cover. You're going to have to run with guys. So, um, maybe he is more of a running back prospect, and maybe that was why I was supposed to see however much I saw, so that I could finally be convinced that running back is the true position for him. But either way, like you said, Drew, just scary to think about him getting in a little more shape. And again, it's it's the summer. Kids are home. They're eating mom's cooking a little bit more. They're not out at their schools as much, and I'm sure that's going to change here in the next week or so. But it, you know, it's the summer. We get it. The, the kid's still a year away from really contributing, you know, at, at a college program, getting into the whole routine, all that. We understand that point for anyone listening, but uh, scary to think about him at that next level at, a year from now when he is in shape, when he is starting to get into the college program. Just absolutely terrifying to think about. I know there's some Eddie Lacy comparisons there, and I could I could see that at running back if everything goes well for Devin White, and I think any college coach in America would be okay with that. John, I wanted to ask you, this is not really an opening question. This is a uh, 2016 Alabama class question. But I want to ask you, how these two guys, and B, where Alabama, the two guys I'm specifically referring to are Elijah Holyfield and Kevin Ridley. I missed part of the question, but if you're talking about Holyfield and Calvin Ridley, where how they look, where they stand, uh, Holyfield was at the opening, by the way. He was very good. He was actually the running back on Jawan Pass's team. Caught everything I saw out of the backfield, made a couple of guys miss. Not necessarily as smooth as a Najee Harris, and not a guy you would say belongs in a spread system. You know, he wasn't that great in the open field, but 
certainly a guy who could be serviceable as a pass catcher. And he's a little bit bigger than I thought he was in person. You know, he's got some thickness to him, I guess, kind of like his dad, but we shouldn't be surprised about that. Um, Ridley, uh, you mentioned, he, I hear he destroyed Alabama's camp this week. Not a surprise. You know, he's, he's the younger brother of Calvin Ridley, of course. Uh, and recruiting-wise, I think Bama's in the same position for both of them, probably. Obviously, more of a connection with Calvin Ridley. Um, but the Gators are going to be a massive threat to Alabama. He grew up a Gator fan. It's the in-state school. And some of those guys, you know, on that Florida staff obviously come from the Alabama coaching staff. So their approach is very similar to what Calvin you know, was approached with as a recruit, you know, from the Alabama staff, even though he's obviously in Tuscaloosa at this point. So there's there's more of a competition with the Florida Gators for, for Calvin Ridley than other people imagine. And not to mention, other schools are getting involved. Ohio State is a recent scholarship offer out to him. So I don't really imagine him ending things anytime soon like his brother did. I mean, his brother committed on a day, so obviously Calvin has already passed that point by a couple of months. Um, but I think this thing could take much longer, and that's where it gets interesting with Calvin Ridley. We all know there's a big need for wide receivers at Alabama, and we also know Bama's in very good position for a lot of wide receiver prospects. Not only Calvin Ridley, um, you, you go up north to D.C., you've got Trevon Diggs, the younger brother of Stephon Diggs. Demetrius Robertson, the former Alabama commitment, has the tide right up there with Stanford and Georgia in his top group, and I don't think it would surprise anyone to see him back on uh, you know in the fray with Alabama. By the way, very very good at the opening. One of the top two or three wide receivers out there. Um, so there's a lot of good receivers on the board for Alabama. Of course, they have the commitment from T.J. Simmons at this time, and they're talking to Shaheen Carter about playing some wide receivers. So the receiver numbers are going to get tricky there towards the end. So the guys who wait longer, like Kevin Ridley, that could become a factor later in the game from the Alabama perspective. So that'll be interesting to keep an eye on. Uh, but certainly, Bama in good shape. He was at Bama this week, as we mentioned. Uh, he went to camp there with all his other uh, South Florida guys and obviously got to spend time with Big Brother and adopted Big Brother, basically, and Sean Burgess Becker. Um, for Holyfield, uh, again, I said it's probably similar. You know, there's a school or two in the mix for him outside of Alabama, but that's kind of it at this point. Now, decision timetable-wise, a little bit different than Catherine. I think Holyfield probably a little bit closer to making that decision, but um, some schools in competition, of course, Georgia, the in-state school, a kid, you know, he's out of the Atlanta area just like his dad was. Um, and then Tennessee, I think, is, is an interesting counter to um, the Alabama-Georgia argument that some people think this race is going to come down to it. And interestingly enough, for Holyfield, at one point, maybe two months ago, I would have said, I'd be surprised if he didn't end up at Auburn. And now Auburn seems to be almost on the outside looking in with him um, in his at this stage of his recruitment. So his, his thing has kind of been up and down. Bama's sort of the new kid on the block with him. He's, he's only been to campus, I believe, once at this point, unless he's planning a quick return here. Um, so Bama's still the new kid on the block, still uh, sort of a new flavor in his recruitment. So if he's making a decision in the short term, I wonder how much of a factor that is, where Tennessee, Auburn, Georgia have been in the mix for a much longer period of time. So that's something certainly to monitor as, as Holyfield gets closer to a decision. And, and running back in general, just like, line, uh, just like wide receiver, I should say, is going to be another interesting position for Alabama. Right now, zero commitments from that running back position. We know there's some guys to keep an eye on. Certainly Holyfield, B.J. Emmons was just on campus, and he's completely gone dark from the media. 
So we don't exactly know uh, from his perspective how the visit went, but certainly it's his second visit since decommitting from Georgia. And that one is shaping up to be a Bama-Tennessee battle. So Bama on a very short list uh, for some very good running backs, and, and I think um, it will end up with at least one of those two in the end. And my theory has always been you get one of those two, and then maybe later in the cycle you can push for an in-state guy. And what is shaping up to be a pretty good running back class within the state of Alabama Lions, Darian Street, is a huge kid out of Hewitt Trustville that I think is picking up a lot of positive momentum. And LaMichael P. Ryan, you know, the cousin of Samaj P. Ryan down at Theodore High School, committed to Florida right now, but certainly an Alabama offer, I would imagine, would mean plenty to him um, going forward. So I think running back is it's okay that there's zero commitments right now as opposed to some other positions where you need guys, like offensive line. If Bama had zero offensive linemen, it would be time to hit the panic button. But at running back, it's not time to hit the panic button yet. You get one of these national guys, and then maybe you close with a local guy, and you're probably good to go in the class of 20, uh, 2016. Because, you know, Bo Scarborough's coming on with his injury, Damian Harris, just a freshman. There's some youth on that roster, but if you add a guy or two in this class, you should be in pretty good shape. Thomas, do we have a call that has a question for John? This is the longest call screen in radio history. Okay, Drew, you go ahead and ask one. Yeah, I was going to ask about Diggs, John. I know you mentioned him briefly, but I know uh, he impressed you some at the defensive back, and uh, he's someone that's very versatile. I've liked his film at DB, so he may not necessarily totally be a wide receiver. Is that correct? Yeah, and I think that's that's another surprise to come out of it. Like you said, his DB tape is fine. There's no – there's no debating his DB tape in high school, but I guess the upside and all that I always thought was with the wide receiver position. But him at the opening, you know, contesting passes against some of these elite receivers, he kind of floats back there. You think of a, an ideal zone corner, he has some of those traits. He's long, he's lean, very good ball skills. I compare him a little bit now, just a little bit, to Jalen Tabor, another D.C. kid, a long and lean type kid. He's probably a little bit longer. Then Trevon Diggs, of course, he started as a true freshman at the University of Florida opposite Vernon Hargrave this past year. So I think I don't think he's as good as Tabor, certainly not as polished. I think Jalen could be a little more physical than Trevon. But in terms of his length and how he it, it kind of floats around in zone and makes a play on the football and it comes out of nowhere, you're just like, was that Trevon Diggs who made that play? I might have said that four or five times out at the opening. Like, is that Trevon Diggs on defense making plays? You know, he was among the top two-way guys, receiver corners at the event. I probably put him third behind um, Jack Jones out of Long Beach Poly in California and Nico Hardman, who was a five-star on scout. That kid is can do anything he wants uh, on the edge of a football team. I think he's number 20 in the country. He's actually visiting Bama today for the first time. I, I think he actually just left Tuscaloosa. So he's a new prospect on the board for the Tide. And Tide, by the way, likes him at wide receiver from what I understand at this point. So again, Another receiver name to keep an eye on. But Diggs, he can very well play defensive back at the next level. Bama likes those long and lean quarters. He's got that sort of Eddie Jackson body. Um, so he's in Jackson himself, a very good zone corner. I just think in today's climate where the defensive scheme can change literally when one offensive player shifts and you might have to go to a zone really quickly, Diggs has the size and ball skills, and he's not slow either, so I don't, I don't want to make it seem like he's not a fast prospect. He's fast enough. Um, so he's got a lot of traits that translate to a very good zone corner. Of course, he needs to hit the weight room a little bit, just like a lot of these uh, skill guys need to uh, before the next level, but 
certainly I'm more open to him as a defensive back than I ever was after watching him out at the opening. And I think for him, it would behoove of him to sell himself as a two-way guy because we mentioned the wide receiver numbers are going to be very tight at Alabama. LSU's new school on his mix. Wide receiver numbers always going to be tight uh, at LSU. Now, at Maryland, the home state school and the school that you know, his brother played at, he could probably stay wide receiver all the way and they'll be okay with it. Um, but if he's really trying to venture into the SEC, I think uh, he needs to be open to playing both sides of the football because it could benefit him down the road. John, I wanted to ask you about the tight end situation. I, I think that we both agree that there's going to be one more in this class. Uh, there are some very good candidates, only one of which has a brother already enrolled in the basketball team, but that may or may not matter. Uh, how, how do you foresee the tight end situation wrapping up in the class of 16? Yeah, there's some intriguing names to keep an eye on, too, that I'll mention here. Both play ball in the state of Florida. Uh, Isaac Nada, who we mentioned earlier, and, and Nick Eubanks, the younger brother of Kobe Eubanks, who signed with Bama Hoops. Nick actually took his first ever trip to Tuscaloosa this week. I believe it was yesterday. He was on campus there. He actually finished uh, today at Auburn. I think he's going down to Florida State to round out uh, his sort of camp circuit. But first of all, it's good for Bama to get him on campus, which has been a little bit of a barrier over the last year or so that he's been a prospect. Uh, so that's positive for UA. Of course, another positive, he's a Mario Cristobal recruit. I don't think I have to explain why that's a positive at this point, reigning recruiter of the year, no matter who you were looking at um, in that 2015 class. So that's a positive for Alabama. And, of course, the South Florida thing. It's really becoming uh, – South Florida and Texas are really becoming the pseudo-pipeline to Alabama where elite kids play with another elite kids from that area. And you're seeing it every single year. We've already talked about it with, with Calvin Ridley, Sean Burgess Becker. In the last class, we've mentioned Eddie Jackson on this podcast. And this South Florida connection, or excuse me, on the show, this South Florida connection is something that is, is, is truly a thing now in the Miami area, which is always a good thing for any program, you know, even Alabama. So there's certainly some positivity with Nick, but maybe the best thing is that he's not looking to make a decision anytime soon. So if he's taking his first trip, to Alabama, uh, it's good that he's not trying to wrap up his recruitment in the next couple of weeks or so. Uh, of course, Kobe being you know, on Bama Hoops, that certainly helps. And they've talked about playing together at the next level. So we're still looking to talk to Nick following his first ever trip to, to Tuscaloosa. But publicly, you know, on social media and all that, he was very impressed, uh, very complimentary of his time on campus, as you would expect. Any, any first-time visitor to, to those facilities and that sort of presentation, usually going to be impressed. Um, and then Isaac Nada, a kid that I wasn't even wasn't even on my radar of late in terms of tracking Alabama's recruiting. He said at the opening that he's going to take an official visit to Alabama. So, you know, no matter what the percentage is, I think it's more of a Florida State Georgia battle. Of course, he's committed to Florida State right now. Um, but again, no matter what the percentages are, you take that official with Tuscaloosa, your mind might open up a little bit. Um, it's clear with Nada, he wants to play in a pro-style scheme. So if any school is going to sway him, it's going to have to be a Georgia or uh, an Alabama, maybe Michigan, who says, you know, who's, who's getting into the fight for him as well. Um, so he's, he's a familiar kid. He used to play at Buford High School up in uh, just north of Atlanta. So he's familiar with Alabama, familiar with that culture. He's played against a lot of Alabama commitments and signees. So he, he understands all of that. So you don't look at him as a traditional Florida prospect who 
like Nick Eubank, you say, oh, man, it's good for him to even get on campus. Nada is, is past that point. On the field, I don't think this can be stressed enough. This kid, you talk about setting up defenders, receiver, tight end, running back. I don't think there could be a better player in the country at truly setting up a defender like Isaac Nada. I mentioned one of the top two-way guys I saw all week was Jack Jones out of California. Nada put him on the ground with a move, and he didn't touch him to put him on the ground. And Nada is not a guy who's running 4-3. You put him on the ground with his ability to set up, head fake one way, go the other way. It was it was classic theater, and he actually taught the football with one hand after that point. He's not a fast guy, but that guy is open every single play, and he does not drop passes either. So, of course, in today's football or in any era of football, finding a tight end, H-back like that, extremely rare. Uh, it's, it's something that makes you extremely coveted. So no surprise that Alabama is still pushing to help to host a guy like that for an official visit. And now that it's, you know, supposedly going to happen, according to Nada, I think uh, it becomes more of a process to keep an eye on. I think the state of Florida could supply that number three tight end for Alabama uh, in this 2016 class. But certainly tight end is one of those positions where kids can come out of nowhere, just like Miller Forrest all did. Uh, you know, he was uh, not on anybody's radar a few months ago, and now he's on Bama's commitment list and uh, scout top 300 guy. So tight end is one of those fluid positions, but as of right now, I think Nick Eubanks is probably the number one guy to keep an eye on, but not not, or not far behind, at least uh, at this point. And there's still some other guys, too. Nasir Upshur out of Philadelphia, he's actually set to make fluid ball, I believe, tomorrow. He had a little bit of a family issue this week. I don't want to go into detail on that. So he did not make his first scheduled trip to uh, Tallahassee. So I'm not sure if that carries over and cancels the Alabama trip as well. But he's been to Alabama before. The tide has been in on him. And he was also out at the opening, very good at the opening. He's more of a traditional big body tight end. This kid is, is you know, 6'4", 250 pounds, run down the scene, old school type of tight end. Maybe one that Alabama does not have on the commitment list just yet, I think. Uh, Eubanks and Nada a little, they're a little smaller, more of the H-back variety, and, and Eubanks might even end up as, as a wide receiver for all we know, and we know Forrestal is, is in that group as well. So in terms of just a different type of tight end, maybe the top target could end up being Nasir Upshur because he is that big body, tan in the dirt, you know, old school tight end that could have, you know, played in nine formation in the 90s, you know, so... He's another one to keep an eye on, especially if he does end up getting back to Tuscaloosa um, tomorrow uh, or, or even later in the summer or even for an official visit, I say keep an eye on him because he's, he's at Bama on his mind for quite some time. So tight end, again, fluid. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what direction UA wants to push with if all these guys end up you know, ready to commit at some point, especially with two guys well, already committed, something we haven't seen a lot of. Oh, you're right, John. And, it, it looks like at least this year that the tight end position is more plentiful and Alabama's trying to take advantage of it. But great stuff. We need to have a lot of great info from the opening. We always love having you on BAMS radio. And you gave us almost a full hour tonight. And, uh, again, the, our audience really loves it when you bring uh, the, the heat with recruiting. And uh, uh, we look forward to having you on BAMS again soon. But thanks for, uh, for all the info tonight, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Anytime, fellas. I appreciate you having me on. Okay, thanks. That was John Garcia of uh, Scout.com and BamaMag.com. But if you've been following John's uh, posts and articles, you were not surprised when Juwan Pass, quarterback from Columbus, Georgia, committed to Louisville earlier today. Uh, that was pretty much a done deal for a long time. 
So John had us up to speed on that, as he has us up to speed on all Bama's recruiting. And we thank John for joining us. We thank Hannah Chalker for joining us. Uh, it was good to hear from Big C, even though he got the producer steel toe on hot milk boot. And uh, good to hear from Pay Chalkman as well. But we're going to wrap it up now. So for Drew Jarman of ESPN 97.7 The Zone, for Thomas Watts of Touch Channel Magazine, I'm your co-host, Chick Clark, of BamaMag.com, wishing you good night, roll tide, and you've been listening to Bam's Radio, member of the Bama Sports Radio family. Roll tide.